Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools, where two parents and accidental activists talk about all of the problems in our K-12 education system. And sometimes we actually talk about the solutions, which is what we're going to do today. I'm Andrew Gutman, along with my esteemed co-host, Beth Feely. Today, we're going to talk about classical education, which is something that is really of interest to me. So Beth, you want to go ahead and introduce today's guest? Well, thanks, Andrew. Um, And today we'd like to talk about the concept and implementation of a classical school. So we have as our guest someone who has started a classical school. And so we welcome Jennifer Burns. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Jennifer holds a master's degree in marketing from Northwestern University and is a wife and a mom to three sons aged 23, 19 and 13. She spent her early career in marketing communications, but then felt called to be home with her son and started homeschooling him kind of before it became fashionable. In 2004, she started an enrichment program called HEART, which I'm sure she'll tell us about. And then two years after that, created a classical hybrid school called Classical Consortium Academy. They are both going strong today, serving over 350 students. And so, Jennifer, we're really happy to have you here to enlighten us. Um, and we thought we would start with the question, what exactly is a classical school? And then how does that differ from today's public and private school models? That's a great question. So a classical model of education really looks at how a child learns naturally and then Um, uses that as the foundation to then say, okay, what does that student need to learn and how do they need to learn it in order to go with the grain of how that child's wired? And so if you break it down into kind of three parts, one is the grammar stage. And that is, um, if you've got a grammar school student in your home, you know that they can memorize things really, really well. And so what the classical education says is, well, let's go with that. And what we're going to do at that time where they're so good at memorizing is we're going to give them the facts and the foundation or the grammar of all subjects. And so we wanna kind of fill them up with those. And we use methodologies like chants and songs and all of those things that make things more easy to memorize. And, um, and so that's what we do at the grammar stage. Well, then the kids get into the what we call the logic stage around middle school. And if you have a middle schooler in your home, you know that they are argumentative, right? They've got that hypocrisy meter on high alert. And so what they're not, that's how their brains are wide, right? They're naturally looking for um, a difference in what is said versus what is seen. And so they are designed to compare and contrast, see cause and effect and to argue. And so we understand that's how they're wired. So what do we do? Well, we teach them things like formal logic critical thinking, we help them understand discursive reasoning, right? We're not just arguing based on how we feel, but on facts. And so we teach them how to do that well. And then the students go, and of course, because they've got the foundation of all of the facts that they've learned in grammar school, they actually have something from which to you know, dig from, right? A well that they can draw from to articulate their arguments and give reasons why. Then in the rhetoric stage, um, it's about expression. Again, if you know a high school student or if you can remember back when you were a high school student, it's all about that time where you're trying on new personas and you're going to try that radical haircut or, you know, have that 
outfit, um, express who you are. And, and so we understand students are about self-expression. And so we try really hard to help them understand esoteric ideas, like what is good and true and beautiful. And we try to help them express themselves really well, both written and orally at that time and focus on that. So is this, so the word of classical implies this is the way school used to be. Yes. Is that correct? And when did we go, I don't know if you're, you know, a historian of education, but when did we get away from that? Right. So yes, it is um, the way it started in, you know, Plato's Academy, right? And, um, you know, this is how our founding fathers were educated. Um, Typically, uh, this is how People even still in kind of Eastern European countries are still educated much in this way. Um, we, we went uh, far afield when Dewey and the other progressives came in and essentially said that asking students to read this kind of literature, asking them to write as extensively as you have to is, um, is unfair and um, impossible. And I will tell you, you know, educating, you can't, I don't think, adequately educate classically with 30, 35 kids in a classroom, right? We're, and in a packed day that doesn't leave downtime for good quality reading. You know, it, it takes a lot to, to get through, you know, Dante's Inferno, or the Federalist Papers or the Anti-Federalist Papers. Looking at source material is tough work. And that's really hard to do in, um, in a packed classroom and a packed day. Is it, I mean, was it inevitable? Like we're talking about about 100 years ago, I guess, or maybe a little bit more than that, when, you know, public schools expanded. And there was this push towards, I guess, what is now called progressive education. It, it, was it inevitable that we would lose classical education because you have packed classrooms and packed days? Well, or, or was there an alternative to do it? So here's my, my opinion is that, so yes, I think the packed classrooms, the packed days, but I think the, the purpose of education changed. It went from teaching teaching people how to think to what to think. And, um, and, and it was more of an indoctrination rather than a true education of, of teaching our students how to think like, um, you know, scientists or authors or artists. And, and, and so I believe it was inevitable because the purpose of education changed. And is that, are you talking both in a public and largely private environment? Well, I, I think the private school sadly went right along with the progressives, right? And, and I think- Yes, often, they did. <laughs> I think often what happens is public school was, was the standard, right? It, it was, and, and so even private schools were saying, okay, well, we're private and we want Jesus on top or whatever religion, right? Um, but we're going to try to follow the model of the public schools. And that was, I think they were misguided in that. And really, I think it starts in how the educators are being educated. So once you get them on this kind of bandwagon, then it really does kind of um, 
go throughout the education system, regardless um, if it's being delivered publicly or privately. So, right. That's a fabulous, that's a fabulous point, right? They're all coming from the same well of, um, you know, getting your teaching degree from XYZ university. You're right. They're all, they're just going to, to different places to um, kind of implement what it is they've learned. So absolutely. Yeah. Good. Great point. So take, take us to when you started um, your first classical consortium Academy. Um, and then uh, Jennifer's also opening one in a, a suburb near me. So I'm kind of interested to also hear about how the expansion process works, but um, what was that process like? What did you need to, I guess, evaluate and can you kind of take us through um, how that went? So honestly, I never, I never planned on being, being here. It was, um, I think I, I'd like to rewind a wee bit and go back to heart. So I was a, I was a marketing consultant. I loved my job. I really, um, you know, really, really enjoyed working for my clients and doing two things in particular, seeing um, what it was, you know, seeing their, the target audience and understanding them really well so that I could help my clients fashion products and services and support that meet those needs and delight them. So that's what I loved to do. And then I have this four-year-old at home who I was just um, over the moon in love with and knew that I needed to stay home with him and decided that after staying home, I thought, what in the world am I going to do? I connected with him over education and thought, well, maybe I'll do this crazy thing called homeschooling got entrenched in that homeschooling world a bit and recognized that there was a need there for one place where you could have a great enrichment program for your children to kind of round out their education. And so I kind of used what I had learned in the marketing world and created HEART, um, which is a a drop-off program and, and students get all of the extras, you know, art and drama and science lab and you know, foreign language and all of those things that round out your education, but in physical education, the things that are hard for moms and dads to do at home on their own. It was um, a, a year or so into that, that, you know, that was a hard lift, but it wasn't impossible. And I saw another need out there for academic help. And in particular, I, I saw that there were many homeschooling families who really liked the idea of classical education but it is really tough to do um, on your own at home for two reasons. One is that it really asks you to be an expert in a lot of fields that parents just don't feel equipped to educate their children in. And the other is that um, one of the hallmarks of a classical education is that discourse between students, especially as they get into the logic and rhetoric stages, they need that banter they need debate, they need the Socratic circles and the the questioning and all of that. And so you really can't do it, I think, adequately at home on your own. And so I saw a need there and created the Classical Consortium Academy. Is that different now, now that there are, you know, now that you can do Zoom school, now that there are so many online resources, are we seeing, I mean, I know there's always been a connection between sort of homeschooling community and classical education and a lot of overlap. I mean, I read a book that I think is, you know, one of the Bibles of, of homeschooling, a well-trained mind, I think oh, it is. Yes. So, you know, which, which is, you know, as much about, you know, classical education. Um, 
so I'm guessing there is that overlap between between homeschooling and classical education. And I, I, I get your point that it's very hard to do one on one and it's very hard to do if the parent doesn't feel that they have the education necessary to teach a lot of these concepts and great books and such. Um, is, is that a little bit different now with with today's technology where you do see homeschooling community, you see pods, co-ops uh, where they can do that more easily? Yes, I'm, I think that you see certain publishers like Veritas Press and actually all of the, the major classical publishers have some sort of online school, whether it's a, a comprehensive school or just at least a few classes here and there, they offer that support, which I think is wonderful, especially if you don't have access to an in-person community. I do think having experienced for um, a half a year or a few months, you know, when everything shut down due to COVID, we went online um, at that spring and our kids did well, our, our teachers transitioned, you know, it was really, everyone stepped up. But what we found, and as, I think as well as we did during that process, we also recognized that we never wanted to go back to that, that it was fine, it was fine, but that's all it was, it was fine. Now, I don't mean to say that those um people out there who are offering classical education online, that they're just doing a fine job. But I think that there's something about being together that just is so important. And so I guess if it can be done in person together, let's let's have it be done in person together. Within the classical school world, are they mostly run relatively in the same manner, or do you see a lot of differentiation in between either what the coursework is or how it's delivered or, you know, length of day? And then you also mentioned like yours was kind of a hybrid. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So there are different, I would say different manifestations of a classical philosophy of education. Um, you know, there's a, a very popular kind of franchise model um, classical assistance to um, homeschooling and they they work differently than we do you know same philosophy of education but they run things a bit differently um, so we are a hybrid school and I have come to so appreciate that model for a couple of reasons one is that I do think for a classical philosophy of education, I mentioned before that we, our students just do a lot of academic heavy lifting. And so they need time to process the material that we're asking them to read. It, they need time to just think about responses, whether they're writing a paper or they're, you know, crafting the answer, short answers to um, questions. They just need time to do that. And that really, I don't think a student can adequately think and process the kind of material we're asking them to do in between a full day of school and like soccer practice. It just doesn't work that way. And so to have a hybrid model where you come to school one or two days a week, but then have daylight kind of awake hours to really think and process um, is important. You know, there is a downside to it. Things like math and foreign language are harder to teach in a one day or two day a week model. Um, and so I'm very thankful for you know, 
the different curriculum that we can use that helps support at home learning in those areas. Um, there are traditional five day week models that that work as well. Um, I think those have to build in some of that downtime in order for students again to, to process the material and and do the kind of thing that they're asking to do. Our model um, comes with the benefit of what I call concentrated laundry detergent, right? We are, our parents are only paying for the time that their student are in, is in school with us. And so it is um, a really affordable way to have an exceptional education. Um, so could a child transfer in to your classical hybrid school? I guess, have you had that happen? Do they need to play catch? I would imagine they'd need to play catch up in some significant ways, but um, is it an option for people? It is. Um, it's harder. You know, I'll be really honest with you. Um, we tend to educate students out of a traditional public school. So it, it, most of our students don't leave to go to a public school, but if they did, they would be um, above their peers. Uh, which means then transferring in is challenging for students. So the further along they get, the harder it is. So I am in particular, I typically will not take a student coming into high school with us if they haven't had a classical education or at least a rigorous education of, with lots of great books and great literature up to that point, because I don't want to see a student drown. What I often talk about with our students is I want to put things within tiptoes reach of them. I want them to have to stretch to learn, um, but it doesn't do a student any good if they're just drowning in the material. And so that's not my goal. And I want them to succeed and feel really good about it. Because what when our students come in and they take our approach of just every year that builds on the one that came before it and they're growing in their capabilities, they can do really hard things and they feel so good about accomplishing them. And so I want that real self-esteem boost for students and not them to feel less than. You think the kids like this kind of education? I mean, it, it sounds like it's more work than a typical public school or even private school. It sounds like it's a lot more reading. We're seeing kids reading enormously less given the day age of phones and social media. So obviously you've got to have parents on board with this that, that are, you know, and, and the kids have to be on board with this. But is that hard to do? It's hard even, you know, today to get kids and families on board with this. And, you know, do they like it? Do they, do they, are they okay with doing a lot more reading than they would in a public school? Students, um, I think, really enjoy what it is they're learning. So they're engaged because we're teaching history in a chronological way. They can see the story unfold the way it was meant to be, mm -hmm. right? It's the way it happened. And so it's exciting. Completely, uh, completely different than the way most schools do social studies and history. Oh, right. Which, which right. is awful. <laughs> right. I mean, I out of order. How confusing yeah. that is to read chapter 20 and then lenses and... and then 25. Right. <laughs> like what the story makes no sense. Right. So it's exciting because it is a story. History is a story and it's, it's unfolding and it's wonderful. And it's, it's so neat because then you can make the connections. Right. Um, so I would say we're giving students really engaging things to think about and learn. 
I mean, the reality is, is that it is really, it, it is academic heavy lifting. And so it's, it's like asking someone, did you enjoy training for the marathon? <laughs> um, sometimes, yeah, you know, that's, that's nice and fun. It's certainly more fun when you start to recognize how, um, it, you know, that you can do it, right? You get, you feel really good <laughs> when you start to realize like, oh, I couldn't get off the couch before, but now I'm easily, right. I'm easily, um, you know, running three miles or five miles. So you feel really good. So I would say what our kids tend to do is they um, come back and thank me <laughs> um, when they get off to college. Because they're so well-prepared because they're ahead of everybody else. Just all the above. Well, yes. All of those reasons. And so what I would say is students go through a time where, yeah, they do get a little fussy with me and they'll even say, they'll come back from college and go, okay, Mrs. Burns, I was a bit fussy with you about, you know, saying things behind your back. Like, why are you making me do this? And now I recognize why, you know, so when, when they are presented with material in college that um, they are handling with ease, right? Everyone else around them, even kids who have gone through AP classes, they're asked to read what the college professor wants them to read or write uh, extensively. And our students are doing that with no problem while everyone else around them is fretting about it. And so they feel really, uh, th then, then the thank yous come, which by the way, I do not need, but I, I chuckle a wee bit because I think, yes, I'm glad you're, you're recognizing how important it is that you got this kind of education. Have you had students um, give feedback that they've encountered um, maybe peers, either maybe when they're still in school with you or when they're encountering them in college who have not gone to a classical um, school and who have been, you know, perhaps in a private school or a public school that has had a lot of this social justice type of ideology um, in how they've been educated. And do the kids that go through your school have the vocabulary or the, um, I guess, how do they, how do they communicate with those kids? Like, do they kind of, do they know what they're even talking about or, and how also has the social justice type of, um, material, has it found its way into the classical school environment or has that been uh, more or less avoided to this point? Those are all great questions. So in general, what we feel really strongly about is educating students for the real world. So we don't shy away from students reading material or us discussing material. Um, it's typically in the past. So for example, our students read Mein Kampf. Mm -hmm. It's really, they read the anti-federalist papers. They, what we want them to understand is the false narrative, but we, we help them see it through a biblical lens, right? So we help them when looking at those more um, texts that have happened in the past, we help them learn how to dismantle it, see what's what's false. Um, we teach them formal logic and critical thinking so they understand what a false argument is. They understand what um, you know evidence that is sound or cogent and not. And so um, so we we train them up from very young how to how to see that. 
we don't shy away from anything. We want them to recognize what's going on in the world. We talk about those things and, and why it is true or why it's false. We have them debate about it. So they are equipped then when they go off to college um, that they're not going to be duped by what they hear about because they've never heard about it. Most classical schools, I think, are, are Christian classical schools. Uh, there are some secular classical schools. I think that's a minority of them. How, in your view, how important, or how uh, you know, how important is the religious component to the classical curriculum? Can you do it without the religious component? Is that you know a core part of it? Is, is the morality aspect of classical education really important? You talk a little bit about that. Well, so you're right. There are secular um, classical schools out there. Um, you know, the Hillsdale has planted Barney charter schools um, that are classical in nature. Um, and, you know, even in the state of Illinois, in the city, the Decatur classical is, I think, rises to the top of um, an outperforming students. I haven't looked recently, so please. Um, is that a charter or that's a private? No, that is, isn't that a, um, I don't know what they call it in, in Illinois. I don't think it's a charter school. It, it's a, I think it's a selective, do they call it a magnet or a selective public school? Um, so forgive me for not knowing that, but it, it is a classical school and it's, it's secular. Um, I personally, you know, we are a classical and Christian school. I don't believe you can adequately teach, um, a classical education without having God as the foundation of all, you know, that's kind of the purpose of why we're teaching what we're teaching. Um, you know, math is a study of God's order of things and science is the study of his creation. And so, um, so at least here, we cannot separate God and, um, and what we're doing. Is it infused? Is the, the religious component infused throughout the entire curriculum? I, I actually, I remember when I was, I have this dream of starting a classical school. I actually talked to Hillsdale about this close to a year ago, and we, we got into that because most of their schools are Christian classical. Some are, you know, secular classical. And we talked a little bit about the differences. Uh, and what they had told me was that, you know, the curriculum is maybe 80 or 90 percent the same. If you do you know, the Christian classical, you layer that on top. Is that different than the way you do it? Is, 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 is the religion infused into all aspects of the curriculum, the way you do it? We do, yes. And interestingly, so um, I was in communication with Hillsdale as well. So my oldest went to Hillsdale for college. Um, and I, my argument was, I'm not quite sure how you can split the two to be honest. I mean, I, I, I feel like it's so infused in what you do because I mean, of the lens. In, right. in reality, I mean, re there are religious schools, you know, Catholic schools that educate people from all sorts of religious backgrounds, and they don't hide the fact that that is a, you know, central organizing principle, but it, but you, know, you still get people coming to the school. So, you know, you can, you can start one and still attract people from all types of backgrounds. I think um, it doesn't have to be a, show, a deal breaker. Right. And we do actually, I mean, the predominant um, family that we attract is a, a Christian family, but we have had over the years, people who are not Christian, but who value the quality of education we provide. Um, and so they've, they've come to us. So 
So, you know, in terms of the sciences and perhaps um, kids who are interested in engineering and some of these harder science areas, um, does a classical school provide them enough of a foundation or um, is there some supplementation that is needed? Because you do see a lot of this entering, um, especially in the high school years, more and more um, as a way to, to kind of prepare them um, for careers. And so what, what do you see in that respect? So Beth, you're asking a, a really wonderful question. And it is, it is, do children need exposure to the kind of high level sciences that they're getting now in the, in the STEM and the STEAM programs? And, and so my argument is this, <laughs> that at this age, um, K through 12, what I think is most important is that our students learn how to think like. So think like scientists, think like mathematicians. I don't believe that they need to be exposed to, you know, the latest lasers or, you know, just all of the equipment that comes along with kind of a really well-funded STEM or STEAM program. Um, I think the foundation of everything is to know how to think, right? How to, how to observe how to glean the information you need, process that information, analyze it, and then come up with an opinion, a solution, and articulate it. And that is fundamental for whatever career you are going to go into. So what I love is that I love that our students actually major in all sorts of different majors. I've got pre-med students. I've got engineers. I've got teachers, people who are going into ministry, uh, filmmakers, social workers. And, and I love that they have found that this true liberal arts education gives them that strong foundation to succeed in those careers. It was actually my follow-up question is what are some of your students doing now? And it sounds like there is a real breadth of career paths that they have had open to them um, from the training they received. So, yes, I think in a, in a time when everything's changing, I, I, I can't remember, remember the exact statistic, but I read something about how the jobs today, the majority of the jobs today are not going to be the jobs that are around in 20 years from now. And so how do you prepare a student for that ever-changing marketplace? And I think, honestly, it's not to chase it down because you can't, right? We, we don't even know the, the careers that are going to be out there then. But what we can do is say, what's the fundamental parts of any career. And it's the things that we've been talking about, right? Critical thinking, analysis, observation, articulation in written and oral form. All of those things are so important, are foundational. And so that's the kind of education you need to give students so that they can be prepared for whatever comes their way. So I'll follow up on that. And you may not know the answer to this, but I'm kind of curious. I'll ask it. Is there any data out there that shows that classically trained students do better either in college or beyond, you know, in, in the workplace? Yes. So I'll point you to, because I don't have it all memorized, the ACCS website. So that's the Association of Classical Christian Schools. Um, they, they do a couple of things. Um, well, they're a wonderful association, but they've got some metrics 
on their website that I think anyone who's interested in classical education can check out. One is, um, let's look at test scores, right? Test scores are important, I feel, because it helps give our kids a seat at the table, right? I want to make sure that academically they can compete with their peers. And what those uh, studies show is that by those typical standards, ACT and SAT scores, classical Christian students outperform their public school, traditional Christian school, traditionally educated homeschool peers. Okay, so, so they're tops there. Um, Notre Dame and the ACCS did an interesting study that said, okay, we know our kids outperform others in you know, those measures. What about, um, are they good servants in their community? Are they, um, when everyone is abandoning church, are they still going to church? Um, are they married? Are they having children? So these kind of other metrics are students from classical Christian schools also rising to the top. And sure enough, they found out that they are. And so I, when I talk to families, I say, you know, by God's standards, as well as by the world's standards, students who have a classical education rise to the top. Okay. So if I am a parent who is sold on this model and the benefits and, and that this is the right fit for my family, what would my next steps be? Um, and I, let's say I have a second grader, um, like what, where would I go? Well, what, where would I go to find information? Who would I talk to either with you or other resources um, to, to be able to make this an opportunity for my child. Great. So I know you have a, a wide audience outside of this location or this state here. So I would um, go to the ACCS website and learn a little bit more about classical education. And they have a wonderful tool that um, allows you to look by state and see the classical schools in in that state. So that's a, a really great place to start. Um, and then you know, figure out which one works for them. Um, here in Illinois, we have a few traditional five day week um, classical schools. And then, you know, we've got our hybrid approach. So. Great. So I actually I have two questions. I thought I only had one question, but I'm going to, I'm going to, this seems to be a trend, especially in the last few years, more interest in classical education, partly because every other school has been politicized by the ideology that we talk about on on most of the episodes. Um, Is that right? I mean, are you seeing that? And do you expect that to continue? So prior to COVID, there was a decline in traditional Christian school attendance. They were closing, attendance was poor. And and I believe that the reason for that is because families thought it's the same education. It's just, you know, sprinkled with Jesus on top and, and it's the same quality or honestly, in some cases, below the academic rigor or quality of the public school, depending on which district you lived in. So, so they were in decline. When you looked, however, though, at classical Christian schools, they were on the uptick. So even before COVID, um, a classical education was the type of education that really resonated with parents. And honestly, it was worth paying for. 
because that's tough, right? You're paying your property taxes and then you have to pay for private school on top of that. And so classical Christian schools, traditionally, we're seeing that uptick and that rise. I think it has just continued um, since COVID and, um, and beyond. So uh, there is a rise. You're you're recognizing it as yeah. well as it's gotten some great press, right? If you watched, um, there's a, a Fox News series, The Miseducation of America yep. by Pete Hegseth. He did a beautiful job actually talking about that education, the history of education and the decline in our society, and then made the case really for classical education as being the solution. And I couldn't agree more. I'm a little bias. That's a perfect segue to my, to my very last question. Can anybody benefit from a classical education or is only for the smarter kids or only for families that have certain moral or religious values? In other words, can we put classical education schools anywhere? Can we put them in inner city neighborhoods and will kids benefit? Or is this really a niche, you know, type of education only for certain kids? No, it is, it is for everyone. Um, you know, we don't give kids enough credit, frankly. And I think that we allow a student's say socioeconomic uh, status to somehow pigeonhole them into what being less than, not being able to understand or learn Latin or learn from Latin or, um, and, and so that's, that's false. And, and I love that more schools serving populations that have been underserved academically for so long um, are getting more classical Christian schools. As a matter of fact, I'm on the board of a school called Inheritance Academy that will be serving um, you know, the Northeast uh, population of our state in uh, not next fall, but the year after that. And, um, and it is it's very much meant to fly in the face of that, that, that students can read great works of literature. They can learn how to write. They can learn how to think clearly and deeply about these things if we just give them the chance to do it. Yeah, well said. So before we let you go, um, your, your school's website is classicalconsortiumacademy.org. It is. Is that right? If anyone wants to check that out, which, which yeah. I have on my screen here. And I want to thank you for, for, for two reasons. One, just for being on our show, being a guest and talking about classical education. But secondly, because usually I'm a lot more pessimistic after, after we record these, because we talk about all the problems in education. And, and this is one of the very few episodes where I feel a little bit more optimistic that there's actually some, some light uh, and people are doing really good things in education. So I do want to thank you for that. And thank you for being on the show. I'm so glad I have to tell you, I listened to your podcast and I, I listened to it and I think I'm so glad it just reaffirms what we're doing because we are, we are a solution and we're not the only solution, but um, I get more and more affirmed about what we're doing here and honestly, how great our kids are and um, everything that our teachers sacrifice and our parents sacrifice um, when, I, when I hear your, your podcast, because it is a solution and we're just doing our little thing in this little corner of Illinois and, and other people can do it too and really, yeah, really yeah. thrive and succeed.
They can. So it's infectious um, it and contagious. So yes, no, it's a wonderful work. I'm hopeful too. So thank you, Jennifer. Thank you both very, very much for having me. So what'd you think of that, Beth? I, I, I was really interested. Oh, I thought it was very informative. You know, I've heard a lot about classical schools. I've had friends that have classically homeschooled. Um, and then I also have a friend who is involved with starting up this alternative that's in a neighboring suburb um, that Jennifer's involved with. So that's how she came on my radar. Um, I, you know, I think it's an incredible alternative. I think what I liked most is that kids can rise to this standard. The whole notion that we need to make sure that school is at a certain level. So all kids the lowest comfortable. common denominator. Exactly. Right. It's just so misguided. And I love that this classical um, approach is rigorous and it really believes in the capacity of kids to be able to do this. There might be some kids for whom this is not the best fit, but yeah. Overall, we should be making that the exception, not the rule. Um, so I really, really liked that. Well, I think it's 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 push, you know, pulling kids up rather than pushing them down, which is what the public schools and now the private schools seem to be doing. I, I do wonder, and I and I ask this, how many kids can really benefit from this? Not not in theory, but again, in sort of today's world of so many distractions. Can you get every kid to read the great books and sit down and 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 do the amount of you know, work and reading and writing required to really benefit from this. I'm kind of curious about, you know, how broad this can really be, but it, it seems to be a phenomenal option for a lot of kids. I think so. And I think you actually are finding in some, you know, neighborhoods where perhaps you might be a little more doubtful that this is taking root. And, you know, I hope you see more of it because I'm firmly a believer that unless you believe in the capacity of people, you actually, um, you know, I think you keep them pigeonholed into, like you said, the lowest common denominator. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's moral. And it definitely, I think, um, prevents people from reaching their potential. So, you know, I'd hate, I think best to make it available. And then if you need to figure out ways to, um, to help, you know, make up for, for some death, some deficits or places where it's not working well, then, then you do that, but not just to, you know, not try it at all because it's not going to work for everyone. Um, yeah. I just don't, I don't think that's the way to go. But one, one thing we, you know, we touched on very briefly, I think you had asked the question about, or she answered, which is an issue is, are there enough teachers? that are qualified to teach this kind of education? Because I don't get the sense there are that many. Clearly, if teachers have gone through the graduate education schools for many decades now, they are not qualified to teach this kind of education. No, well, and I think actually it, this is very, and she was talking about this and really how she got into it. This really has been popular among homeschoolers. So these are parents, these are not parents who are trained educators. These are parents who have taken up the mantle. And so I don't know, I don't know if you need trained people. Obviously you need a, some, you know, a core cadre, um, obviously, yeah. but you know, a lot of people are taking this upon themselves. And then I think, I think she was saying that as, as you progress older, like through into the high school years, that's where you probably need to find some more supplemental teachers. But in many cases, these are parents taking on that role and they do it really successfully. Here's the other thing, especially in the homeschool model, it is really efficient. What happens usually is schools in the morning and then you have the entire afternoon to go become 
you know, a tennis star and uh, do plays to become a gymnast. Like it's really, um, it's really flexible. Um, so it's higher quality, I would argue in many ways. And then it also really, cause there's no classroom management, you know, right. it's, it's you and your kids. And so you but really are able to, to accomplish more. If, if you can, if a parent can devote the time to it. Yeah, uh, like two working parents can't do this, obviously. Um, no, I mean, then you're getting into a situation you'd need to hire somebody to do that. So no, it's not going to work for all families, but it's, I think a matter of priorities. Um, and you know, and it may not be a good fit. I, I probably count myself amongst those who would not be the best homeschool mom. Um, as much as I would love to have that, I don't, I don't know that that was going to be the right fit for our family, but I tell you content wise, what this offers, I don't think you can argue with, um, what was she talking about? The, the grammar phase where they're learning the fundamentals, the yeah. logic phase where they're learning to recognize arguments. You know, I know my kids in middle school are really getting, and even earlier than that, they're getting asked to make arguments at ages where I think they need to be developing a foundation of information. And it seemed to me that developmentally, how the classical model approaches this makes a lot of sense. And then you follow up the grammar and the logic with the rhetoric where kids yep. are actually making arguments and then emerging as, you know, truly free thinkers, um, you know, learning how to think, not what to think. And I also loved that the graduates of this are not pigeonholed into being a liberal arts professor or um, a teacher of classical education. Like it sounded like it really prepares you for life, whatever you would like to pursue. Um, and I think that is really appealing and not perhaps understood given this push to do that ever earlier focus on the technical um, at every younger ages, which is really popular. But I don't know if it is that um, as developmentally appropriate or important as people would think. Yeah, well, my, my dream is, is, to kind of start a school someday. I was hoping to get it off the ground relatively soon. I don't know if that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and in a classical model, mm-hmm. um, I would do a, a, you know, a secular classical model, but mm-hmm. I, it doesn't exist where I, was, I live. I mean, in New York city, in, in almost the whole Northeast, it just doesn't exist. You've got some interesting schools around the country. And, and again, mm-hmm. most of the classical are Christian classical. Um, there's one Christian classical school that's very highly regarded in New York city. That's now expanding, just expanded into a high school because of, and I think there's a lot of demand for it. Uh, but it just, this just doesn't exist in a lot of places. It's almost so sounds really like a market needed. opportunity there for you. There is a market opportunity. The yeah. challenge of starting a school in a place like New York City is the real estate is so hard sure. and so expensive. And that's, and that's really the bottleneck because the amount of money then you just to find the real estate and then the amount of money you need to you know, raise an endowment to do this and uh, get it off the ground is just mm-hmm. you know, astronomical. And then you have all the regulatory aspects of doing this, but you know, it, it, there, there's a need, there's an enormous need. And I think there's demand from a lot of families. Did you sense um, that it's also, you know, this is countercultural based upon, you know, she was talking about, you know, recognize, recognizing what is good and true and beautiful. And I think commonly in both private um, and public schools, you know, it's all about, you know, your perspective and your lived experience. And I think they actually are souring on the notion that there is some sort of objective truth. Like, do you sense that there is a um, kind of a countercultural element to this that would also be an obstacle, like amongst your, you know, circles of friends, or do you think people value education and the quality of education enough that they would be willing to kind of break from the pack? 
Well, all my all my now circle of friends are sort of of the same mindset. My pre, you know, year ago post April twenty twenty one friend right, group. Right, different. No, I think I, I think there's a minority of families that appreciate the kind of liberal arts, great books, Western civilization, Judeo Christian value. However, you know, different people call it different things, but but it's sort of all more or less anonymous. Uh, I, I think it's a small segment, and, and you know, one thing that we didn't touch on, and maybe we'll end with this is you and I and, and Jennifer and, and you know, a lot of the people we talk to value that kind of liberal arts education that you know, a good human being, a good you know, American citizen should have that kind of education. And I think most people today and, you know, don't necessarily believe that, they don't necessarily value that. You don't necessarily, it's not valued in the universities. So it's no, you no longer need that you know, that foundation to get to elite universities. And then you no longer need that to succeed in life. I've said this in interviews, you know, you don't need that kind of education. You do not have to be a critical thinker to be a partner at Goldman Sachs or McKinsey or a law firm or run a hedge fund. Unfortunately, you just don't. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, parents are saying, well, you know, they're, they're in the education, they're putting their kids in these fancy schools for the credential, not for the education. And the network. Um, and they don't, you know, they, they just don't value that. So I think it's, a, unfortunately, you know, it's it's a minority of families that I think value that. I wish more did, but there are enough where you could build a lot more of these kind of classical schools. And, mm-hmm. I, and I really do hope that happens. So. I do too. Um, and I, I liked that she said that they really, they don't shy away from material that, you know, might not comport with necessarily, um, their beliefs. Like I love that they read Mein Kampf. Like they want, they want kids to recognize different, you know, works from periods of history to understand and and deconstruct those so that they really understand, you know, to get to what's true and not age appropriate. Yes. And that, and that's really the key is you can do that in high school when the kids already have that foundation and the critical thinking skills. What we're seeing in the education system today is it gets politicized in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Right, with the right, social being an justice. activist. Yeah, right. A is for activist. And so you want to, that- you know, te- you want to introduce, you know, have them read Ibram Kendi. Okay, but in high school, baby, right? Not, not in preschool and kindergarten. <laughs> I think, I think that's, you know, what the classical school is absolutely, you know, classicals are absolutely doing right. You've got to do this in an age appropriate way. So. Yes. Well, it left you hopeful and that makes me hopeful. So um, I'm glad. Yeah. And so it was a, it was a pleasure to talk with her. It was. So um, we, you know, and if you, yeah. And you know, if you missed uh, the past couple podcasts, uh, we had Kimberly Herman on from Southeast legal foundation and um, before that uh, Bob Woodson. And so please do uh, check where you download your podcast from for those past episodes is um, and thanks for listening to this one. Yeah. And if you liked it, and we hope you certainly did, leave us a five-star review wherever you do like to listen to your podcasts. And uh, for my co-host, Beth Feely, I'm Andrew Gutman, and we will talk to you soon on another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.